Welcome to episode 102 of the Get Cyber Resilient show. I'm Dan McDermott and I'll be your host for today. This week is our behind the news episode and I'm joined by our resident cybersecurity expert, Garrett O'Hara. Today, we'll be looking behind the news of Operation First Light 2022, where thousands of people have been arrested and millions of dollars seized in a global takedown. Yes, it's that time of year again where tax scams are rife. We'll review the latest trends in this ongoing cyber challenge. We'll also take a look into new rules being introduced to mitigate SIM swap scamming. And we'll end with a wrap of the latest breaches and vulnerabilities to make the headlines. Gar, first of all, welcome back to Australia. And let's begin by diving into Operation First Light 2022. Yeah, this is. Uh, it seems like we're opening with a good news story, which I think is uh, is always nice. And what a great name, Operation First Light. It's it even sounds um, you know positive and inspirational. Um, look, it, this is one of those those kind of the reason I say it's a good news story because I think it points to how we're going to get better at solving some of these kind of larger cybersecurity issues. And and what this is is kind of collaboration with. 76 countries. Um, I didn't even know there were 76 countries. So even that that alone is impressive. <laughs> um, all collaborating together um, in part, part of basically an international clampdown, um, sort of centralized through Interpol, um, which is that kind of centralized kind of security agency for kind of international collaboration. Um, you'll hear it from Bond movies and those kind of things where, you know, the APB goes out to Interpol when it's an international uh, crime kind of thing. Um, but this seems like it's had some really good um, outcomes. I'm actually on the Interpol uh, site and just looking at the, the results that they put out. And um, they rated 1,770 locations worldwide. Um, they've identified 3,000 suspects. Um, 2,000 operators, fraudsters, and money launderers have been arrested. 4,000 bank accounts frozen. And uh, around 50 million US dollars worth of illicit funds intercepted. So... You know the the bullet point outcomes seem like certainly kind of impressive, and, and seems like obviously a very very large scale operation. And they were going after uh, quite a few sort of different areas, so um, any kind of call centers that were suspected of things like um, scamming and scamming frauds. And you know we all know about those the places around the world where people pick up the phone and basically just try and scam um, the people on the other end of the line in some way. Um, romance scams, uh, BEC was obviously a big one and, um, you know, fairly useful, hopefully crack down on that. I think that's one of the biggest concerns for, um, for many organizations out there. You know, the, the stats have been produced that it's a way bigger problem financially than ransomware, despite being ransomware, ransomware being the, the one we talk about most often. Um, but yeah, this, this seems like a really, really strong kind of, um, global collaboration to, to really go after quite a very broad range of um, attack types, but you know, clearly has had some success rather than uh, you know, a good story. They've, they've actually published the, the results, which I think is um, yeah, points to, to how important this stuff is. Yeah, quite amazing the scale, isn't it? To think of you know, how many countries and locations involved, the coordination of that. And you'd expect that that might take years and years and years of intelligence, right, to build that up and, and look at it. Yet it's saying that this is really targeting the, these operations that have been active sort of between March and May this year. I mean, 
it, that alone also shows the scale of this problem, right? And how much is out there. The fact that, you know, it's a couple of months worth of activity that they've monitored in order to get to this point, to get to those 76 countries, 1,700 locations and thousands of people, right? Um, it's it's quite incredible um, in terms of what's being achieved in that sort of time, time scale as well. It, it really is. And, um, you know, the operation is, apparently it's a yearly event. Um, so a little bit the Lollapalooza for cybercrime enforcement, maybe. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's, it is a, an ongoing operation. And what I suspect we're seeing here is the, the outcome of previous collaborations. I think this is going to be important going forward is not just, you know, one-off ad hoc um, operations, but actually, like, what's the operating model for uh, various police forces and security forces to work together and collaborate? And part of what came out of this was the, the sharing uh, with the member countries um, of of the sort of the trends, um, what they call purple notices from Interpol. Um, so covering things like how money is laundered through personal bank accounts um, and, and specifically victim bank accounts, um, how they looked at you know the, the use of social media platforms for things as serious as human trafficking, um, horrible things like sexual slavery, um, captivity in casinos and fishing boats, which I've heard a little bit about, but, you know, what you, this stuff is important because it's not just, you know, cybercrime, but actually it's a direct effect on people and, and their lives um, to, to that level. You know, when you're looking at, <clears throat> excuse me, things like human trafficking, that's incredibly serious. And there is a huge overlap uh, between these kind of scams and the people who operate them and those kind of, you know, the things that were probably more traditionally offended by and that feel much more visceral as human beings than some business lost, you know, tens of thousands of dollars through a BEC. Um, so I think it's one of these things where, uh, you know, you go after the um, social engineering, cybercrime stuff, but actually probably have an impact on a variety of other horrible things that um, criminals are out there doing. Um, but I love that that sharing of, of the trends and information with the member countries. I think that's going to be critical going forwards. Yeah, indeed. And one of the things that we have spoken about previously is the notion of like even like ransomware as a service and, you know, these operations setting up these, you know, in effect sort of call centers and, you know, cyber centers in order to actually allow others to be sort of almost like to be like the wholesalers and have others at the front line of doing that. I wonder if this will start to, you know, chip away at that as well, that, you know, that some of those operations won't be able to be, you know, as as easy to deploy um, because some of the back-end infrastructure may have been taken away as well. Yeah, there's, so there's definitely that. But I also think the signal of this is serious stuff and, you know, there'll be international collaboration to go after the people who are, you know, partaking in these types of crimes. I think that's super important as well because, you know, we've talked about it. We've talked about this with guests who have been on the podcast about how difficult it is to kind of get satisfaction as a victim because as soon as you go across state lines and certainly international lines, at a personal level, quite often it's very, very difficult to actually get satisfaction because your case almost starts from scratch. And I think as you see the, um, you know, the collaboration internationally to take down operations, that's awesome, right? It's got the immediate impact of that, you know, infrastructure or those operations vanishing from, you know, ransomware as a service or the call centers that are outsourced to provide customer support for how to do Bitcoin for, you know, ransomware operations, etc. I think that stuff then signals the you know it increases the cost in the in the criminals minds for and and the risk for actually partaking or you know undertaking in these kind of criminal um, criminal operations i think it's it's heartening i think it's a good news story I and mean, i look forward to seeing hopefully more of this stuff and, and maybe bigger and better things um you know as we go forward 
but yeah, just that that number of seventy six countries taking part in an operation like that just gives me hope that you know we we will see kind of the collaboration and and better working together um, between countries to to really to fight with you know something is very difficult because it is international and kind of falls across um, international lines. Yeah, indeed. Great collaboration. Like you say, a great good news story to uh, tick off, kick off the episode with. The next story is an all too familiar one, that of tax scams. But what is the latest insight shared by the ATO on this?
Yeah, and I definitely think in that as well is that like, you know, we can't look at it as a generational problem, right? That, you know, oh, well, you know, it's, you know, look out for, you know, our older citizens. Uh, they're the most going to be the most vulnerable to this. They're the ones that will fall for, you know, the ATO scams or the Oz post ones or, you know, the ones that are, you know, probably more general and well-known um, hitting, you know, the broad base of consumers. Um, it shows that everybody's vulnerable, right? Um, and so um, that diligence and awareness obviously is, is critical to that. I think the story of your brother, how like the fake messages are appearing in the same sort of thread as legitimate ones, that's pretty scary, right? Because then it starts to, the lines are very blurred and, and how even if you are diligent and you are looking out for that, how do you start to distinguish in that case as well? Yeah, and that is, that is I think, the the scary part of all of this is that the the set of tools that we provide to end users are becoming kind of more nuanced and more sophisticated. And by that, I mean the things they need to watch out for. You know, if you roll back 10 years, for the most part, you could spot these things relatively straightforward. You know, the 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 grammar was bad and, and they were clunky and they were not amazing. But obviously the money that's being made from this stuff is so significant that it's worth the investment to to really get these things locked down, baked down. And, and spot on, like when he showed me on his phone, the thread, I'm like, man, I work, <laughs> I literally work in this industry. <laughs> I'm paranoid about everything. And, and that was just beautifully executed. The thing that sort of gave it away, the link wasn't crash hot. You could tell from the link in the SMS that it wasn't AI, the, the bank that was in question, but it was, um, yeah, it was just a, the, the link was the thing that let it down. But like I say, in an SMS, you look at the thread, it's that message is appearing in a, trusted thread if you're in a hurry which you know he was probably working at the time you know clicked on the link you know absentmindedly and and then the damage is done luckily he you know he he realized quickly and was able to get the account shut down but i think my parents and, and other people that that maybe wouldn't be the case you know the damage would be done and it would be too late to um, get the toothpaste back in the tube unfortunately i think that's my worry and to your point it's not generational and um, there's over 55s that are incredibly good at this stuff and then there's people who are 17 who are terrible at this stuff um, <laughs> you know there's no no way to kind of paint the demographic broad strokes that i think match the risk no, indeed. And, and I guess it is just that that reminder to be vigilant. Um, you know, I think like, you know, it's probably we still see the ones in terms of delivery services and those sort of things, um, obviously, you know, hit a peak, you know, during the sort of lockdowns and pandemic. But, uh, um, you know, they probably dropped off a little bit and tax scams are going to be on the rise. Right. And I also think that there's going to be more of these and more business email compromise and more, you know, of these type of attacks of identity theft and and looking for bank details and that sort of thing. Um, I think partly related to the fact that, you know, the crash in, in Bitcoin. Um, and so, you know, the the money that you can make out of uh, ransomware may not be the same as what it was previously. Um, and so they'll look at, you know, at new, uh, not necessarily new, but I guess go back to old tactics as well and double down on some of those. Um, and if they're effective, um, as we see, they continue to be effective, right? Hence why every year they come back up and we talk about it again and we're saying there's still a problem in that. Um, and like you say, and the sophistication of them gets that little bit better each time that, you know, the ground that's made in terms of education and understanding uh, 
is sort of countered by the sophistication and and the getting into those attacks and being able to be successful still. So um, it's sort of uh, always, unfortunately, sort of counterbalanced out in terms of, uh, you know, them becoming less effective over time. But something that I guess, you know, continue to raise the awareness of, continue to uh, to be diligent, right? And, uh, and hopefully, uh, you know, this time next year, um, maybe a lesser story. Somehow, somehow, I don't think that's going to happen, Dan. <laughs> Positive episode, Gar. Positive episode, remember? <laughs> there you go, yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, our final deep dive story for this week is a look into the new rules being introduced to prevent SIM swap scams. Now, try saying that three times quickly. Gar, what can you tell I, when us? You said it at the, <laughs> <laughs> when you said it on the opening, I, I was, I was going to mention it nearly straight away that... Uh, there's no way I'm going to even try and uh, say that um, sim swap scam. Yeah. yeah, got a one, so I'll leave it there. <laughs> um, I think this is, you know, in the spirit of the episode, more good news. Um, it's been incredibly easy in the past to basically, you know, walk into a store quite often. And I've done this not for nefarious reasons, but because I needed to um, literally say, hey, um, you know, I've got a new phone. Can I get my SIM swapped um, for like a new format um, SIM, you know, when they went mm-hmm. smaller and micro SIMs and all that stuff. Um, and there was one episode in, in North Sydney where I was in a real hurry. My, my phone had sort of crapped itself essentially and I needed to have a have phone for work. Um, so I bought one and went into a provider who will remain nameless in North Sydney and said, um, you know, I just bought a new phone. Can I get a, you know, micro SIM or whatever the, the format change was? Um, literally all that happened was I gave the mobile number and they gave me a SIM. Um, I might've like maybe, you know, addressed or something like something very, very, you know, Mm -hmm. basic. Um, and I walked out and, um, the issue there is, you know, you're not just taking a phone number these days, you're actually taking, you know, really part of your identity, um, and something that can be used for either, you know, creating a, a more fleshed out identity theft. Uh, situation or in some cases just using it for um, access to other accounts um, I know there's a lot of services um, you know financial telecommunications and, and those kind of services where if I do something on an account including some of the, the government sites um, part of what they will do is uh, send an SMS as a you know one-time code to verify that it is me so the clear problem is if it's so easy to do a sim swap then you're into sim swap scams and where essentially you're able to you know walk into a store get the sim and then very quickly you know get access to email accounts or third-party accounts and what you'll often find is that you can access one account and use that as a sort of hopping stone into other things because you know say a banking account is linked to an email address that you've now got access to so when they send you a verification link or something that's fine you can log into the email because you've you know you've got access there or um you know, anything like that. So I think this is good. What they're looking to do is bring in um, multi-factor authentication when it comes to any sort of um, SIM-related activities, as they're calling it. I think this is a really, really good thing. Um, I think there's there's lots that could be done in general when it comes to service provision in Australia, in every country, um, in what they use to verify you. It still makes me cringe when I jump on the phone to do something with, with something that I consider, you know, a sensitive or important service. And the verification is ridiculous. It's, you know, what's your address? What's your birth date? And, and sometimes that's all it is, you know, and you think, oh, man, um, you know, that frightens me. So I think anything that we can do to introduce kind of true uh, authentication 
um, and certainly multi-factor auth is going to be a good thing. Um, so yeah, like definitely part of the good news story. Um, and you know, it's part of a change. I think it comes in fairly soon. Um, the, the rules come into effect. Yeah. Like it's the June 29th apparently. So, um, yeah, it, it raises the the question then, you know, do, do SMSs become, <laughs> you know, a good two-factor auth method? Um, like I'd argue that we, we have better options available to us these days. So I'd say still probably not. Um, you know, if there's other other ways, then I would say maybe they're, they're a better way to do authentication. And I'm assuming they're not doing, uh, using SMS messages as the, uh, as the second factor. <laughs> gotcha. You would, you would hope not. <laughs> Although... So interestingly, you know, there's there is potential merit to that uh, because at least it proves that you have ownership of the original SIM in some way. Um, although I have a friend who works in uh, law enforcement, and um, you know, SIMs apparently can be duplicated. So that's something that you know the higher level criminals are actually out there doing. They're not just doing the basic walk into a store and you know just sort of scam the uh, the the new sim but actually you know duplicating sims so that you know the numbers kind of appearing in multiple places um but yeah like to, to your point um I, th- I think we've got better options out there these days for um two-factor authentication um, and it actually almost relates back to what we covered in the last new episode where it's um you know the kind of potential national verification database and the use of things like biometrics you know where is that a use case? You know, you you have a, a telco that can do a paper use of, um, you know, a national database, and if you're going to do a SIM swap, you know, that's fine, but you need to do like facial verification or iris or I don't know when you walk into a Telstra store, they're going to have, um, <laughs> sorry, a telecommunications store, they're going to have a, uh, you know, an iris scanner in there, or um, you know, how we'll go about doing that. But you know, it starts to get interesting if we can if we can lock down this stuff more and more. Um, it almost comes back to what we were talking about with you know the Interpol story and this stuff in general. This constantly raises the cost of attack, and you know that's never going to be a bad thing. Yeah, it, it, always putting in those those more you know difficult steps is an important aspect, right? And makes it harder, right? Yep. So uh, so the makes the bad guys have to continue to work harder and harder, and hopefully that means it deters you know many of them because it gets too hard as well. Yeah, absolutely. Terrific. Well, finally, let's wrap up with a quick review of the latest breaches and vulnerabilities to make the headlines. Let's start with how our federal government is continuing to struggle with the effective implementation of the Essential 8 framework. Yeah, I mean, that, that's pretty much the size of it. And we've we've had a few of these stories, I think, over the years, and it seems like a yearly thing that's, um, you know, the, this, the Essential 8 or the, um, the top four, you know, there's kind of the, the, the two kind of approaches to sort of... Um, suppose the, the basics when it comes to cybersecurity controls and um, this is part of a an interim financial controls audit um, and it looked at the entities out there um, and reviewed it's the uh, 20, 2021 policy 10 self-assessment of select agencies um, but it doesn't look like good news basically so a bunch of the the entities sort of didn't meet I suppose a, a good standard um, like there is a, some. The report says only only two of the nineteen agencies actually made the grade, so it's uh that's pretty damning that uh that so such a few um have actually got to you know what would be considered um a required standard. Yeah, it is. It's uh, it is not crash hot, um, and you know there <laughs> there's some shaping of this into positive commentary where there's you know an improvement of uh, maturity and stuff like that. But yeah, when you get to the point where um you know two of nineteen. Um, or hitting that that sort of point, um, it's not good. 
and and the this sort of scary reality is there's a move to make the essentially mandatory. I think it's of July twenty twenty two, so whatever next month. Um, so yeah, it, it would certainly raise questions. You know, if we're we're seeing two of the nineteen um, not meet the kind of the where they would expect it to be already, and then we're actually making the essential eight the baseline. Um, there's more work to do there, so. Um, I don't know what the solution is. Um, you know, we, we talk about this, it feels like every quarter or so, you know, a story like this comes up where, you know, the, the government has sort of had a bad result on one of its own audits. And, um, you know, just it seems to come back to spend money. Um, spend money seems to be the solution. Yeah, well, like you say, there's already sort of, you know, mandates coming um, and then also, as we spoke about last time, the change in sort of federal government and what, you know, Labor might bring. be interesting to see um, whether we start to see, you know, improvement along the way as we go. Yeah, well, we hope so. Indeed. The next story is how the Australian Border Force have conducted over 40,000 electronic device searches from 2017 to 2021. Uh, isn't that, wouldn't that be a good thing that there are searching all these devices at the border, Gar? Well, I mean, it, it depends. Is, is probably what I would say. Um, the, the I suppose the the reality of the situation is that when you pass through borders, um, the border force can basically search your device. You're not under any obligation um, to provide um, your passcode. So that's probably an important point to note. Is that if you've got a password protected device. Um, there is no legal requirement for you to provide that to um, the border force. The reason they they sort of say they're searching these devices, apparently it's quite often in terms of, um, or it's related to questions over visas, um, you know, visas to stay in, in Australia, um, and then things like terrorism activity, etc. Um, so, you know, the, those, you know, on the surface of it feel like legitimate reasons to search devices. Um, I was actually talking to somebody who was a journalist recently and, and we were discussing the use of things like biometrics um, to protect your device. Um, you know, and the conversation was around AI and, and biometrics in general. And, and I actually mentioned this idea that as you're passing through a border, if you're using, you know, fingerprint to unlock your phone, you can't pretend you don't remember your fingerprint. It's, you know, it's part of you. So, you know, it's something to think about when it comes to biometrics as well, is that um, it removes any version of deniability or, you know, I've forgotten my pin code. You know, when the mugger gets you at the um, the ATM, you can say, look, oh, I'm freaking out. I can't remember my passcode. Or you can put the wrong one in and they don't know it because it's locked in your brain. Um, if you're using facial recognition or we get to that point, like it removes that ability to say, I can't remember or, yeah, I don't want to provide that to you. Um, so I think there's some implications there that maybe we need to think about as well. Um, but yeah, the, the 40,000 devices, it's, it's over five years. Um, it's as people are passing through the, the body, uh, sorry, the borders. And um, yeah, as I say, like there's no legal obligation for folks to provide a password or a passcode. Um, or kind of any assistance um, is the quote here in the article to access an electronic device to the border. Um, and the Australian Border Force apparently don't have to advise travellers that, of that. Um, so there there may be situations where there's a little bit of sort of so, very light social engineering happening um, at our borders where you know people will do what I think many of us would do, which is, oh my God, there's somebody in uniform. Um, I need to provide um, access to these days 
something that's generally going to be a very personal device. I'm assuming most people have um, personal photos, you know, whether that's, you know, beautiful landscapes or stuff that may be more personal, um, depending on the people, um, you know, that, that it's that stuff to think about. And, and maybe there's a consideration here because I, I believe they can actually copy devices. Um, so one of the things to think about more from a corporate perspective is, you know, if people are traveling internationally, is it safe for them to bring a device that may be cloned at a border? And that clone device may contain, you know, sensitive corporate IP that, you know, could be accessed. I mean, most people will have an encrypted phone these days, but, um, you know, I wouldn't put it past any, um, yeah, especially, you know, nation state level um, to have ways around that and potentially, you know, access what you think is unencrypted, sorry, is encrypted data and, and get to a plain text version of that. Um, I know there are companies that will, um, either strongly recommend or sometimes mandate that their you know execs or folks when they're traveling into particular countries do not bring their regular device they get issued a you know a air quote safe travel device for those particular countries and um, because the expectation is that you know they, they could be cloned or they could be expected to uh, provide access to those devices so yeah, i don't know it, it seems like an interesting one to me certainly quite high numbers um it feels like but over five years you know maybe when you break it down it's not um it's not that bad yes i've heard of that one as well of the one-time device rather than the one-time password right for uh yeah. for traveling to certain countries yep yeah and absolutely makes sense um you know that expectation that yeah if something goes wrong um yeah, you, you don't want the device where you've got all your financial applications and you know email and all the stuff that gets stored in case on a device. You certainly don't want that, um, that accessible. Indeed. And our last story today is how cyber resilience and beavers collided in Canada. What has happened here, Gar? Um, I, just, I really like this story just because it's one of those quirky, um, <laughs> it's sort of a throwaway. Throw this really does feel like the good news episode. I mean, totally accidental, but um, this like to end on a story with a little beaver <laughs> causing an internet outage in Canada, I think is just lovely. Um, it's, I mean, there's a serious side to this, which is, you know, the world is an imperfect place and, you know, Things things fall apart. That they'll tend to you know um, entropy rather than order, um, and this is an example of that. Where basically a, a beaver in um, in British Columbia and Canada um, gnawed through a tree, which sub subsequently fell down and um, sort of knocked out. I think it was a fiber cable and, and, and removed access for about I think it was eight hours or so um, on the seventh of June. Um, funny story, you know, clearly the beaver, yeah, I doubt it was working for any nation state. You never know. Maybe, maybe they've got gotten to the point where they got, they've trained the beavers. Um, who knows? But, um, yeah, I think it's just, it's wonderful because some innocent little animal was going around doing, like, doing what it does, which is probably building a dam, um, you know, knocked out, knocked out <laughs> a fiber, uh, cable, which apparently has happened quite a few times in, in Canada. It's not like the first time a beaver has caused, uh, problems, um, but I, I like these stories because they're the ones that point to how how digitally interconnected we are, but how we rely on things that are sometimes completely out of our control, despite best efforts. You know, when you're when you're when you're building out your risk assessment um, and all the scenarios, like maybe, but I very much doubt. You know, beaver. Uh, you know, beavers are you know listed on most organizations' list of you know risks to. Um, their digital infrastructure, but you know, maybe we need we need to start thinking that way. I don't know if it's um, what the animal would be in Australia. 
<laughs> I can't think of what the equivalent would be that would be bringing down uh, maybe possums. There you go. There you go. We need to get possums introduced onto our risk assessments uh, yeah, and some planning. Well, uh, indeed, as you said, uh, a quirky story to end with and, um, and overall hopefully a good news episode. So thank you, Gar. I appreciate your insights as always. Who do you have for us as our special guest next week? Next week we have um, a person called Emily Edgley who uh, she works in the kind of public speaking and storytelling space. Um, so I, I think this is actually a really good one. I saw a post from our friend Jay here this morning on the importance of storytelling um, on LinkedIn, and, and I think that's absolutely true. A big part of our um, roles as cybersecurity leadership is quite often getting buy-in and getting you know sort of funding for programs or work, etc. So I think. You know, it tends to be that in communication with with boards and with employees, with staff, um, we mix up the providing of information with influence and influence generally comes from good storytelling. Um, Emily's an expert in that. So, um, yeah, we're going to have her on and just have a conversation around that. So, you know, storytelling probably being the core focus of the conversation. But, um, you know, I'm guessing we will, as always, go on bunny trails. And yeah, and uh, I think also like relevance for the audience, um, I think she spent about 10 years in cyber at uh, one of the big banks as well. So, uh, you know, knows the inside of, uh, of what it takes to be a cybersecurity professional. Um, and then, you know, overlays that with, like you say, that ability to get, tell that narrative well and get buy-in from others. So uh, such an important topic as part of our sort of collaboration and how we work and, and be able to communicate um, the effectiveness of cyber throughout our organization. So, uh, really looking forward to that so until next week if you would like to continue exploring key topics in cybersecurity, please jump onto getcyberresilient.com and check out some of the latest articles including why privilege access management matters more than ever or how upskilling can help beat the great talent shortage and of course remote working is not going away so how do you ensure cyber resilience in this new era thanks for listening and until next time stay safe